Hello, and welcome to the newest episode of the Redeeming the Time podcast. It does not take a genius to look around into today's world and realize that we have a really hard time dealing with political differences, alright? And I see Christians all the time who I think really, uh, really struggle with this. And it bothers me more when I see Christians that are unable to handle the political issues in our modern world uh, than when I see worldly people who aren't able to deal with it. Something that Mac and I have talked about a lot is the way we are supposed to deal with political issues. And so we finally decided to just sit down and do a podcast on this. So what you're going to hear in today's episode is an episode completely dedicated to how we deal with political issues in our modern world. Specifically, what does the Bible say about it? Now, the Bible isn't always necessarily that clear. And so I don't think a lot of people know to look at the Bible this way. But I think if you or to uh, listen to this episode, you're going to realize that uh, the Bible actually has more to say on this matter than you think. It's just a matter of changing your perspective. So take a listen to today's episode, special episode featuring Mac once again, my new co-host, and we're going to take a journey into what the modern political world needs to hear from the church. All right, so, Mac, it is time for me to read to you a brilliant book by a wonderful author, myself, which was written the other night on a Word doc. All right, you ready to hear this expert historian's, uh, uh, well, history? This is high-quality literature. Yes, high-quality literature, indeed. All right, this is called A Noob's Guide to the Public Exchange of Ideas. (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. So... In ancient times, there existed a country known as Greece. The Greeks are known for their intellectual society and an emphasis on political debate and philosophy. The Greeks would even build public gathering areas called an agora. Okay, so the agora was a marketplace, but it was also used for things like philosophers to come and debate uh, political and philosophical ideas. But the Greek world was one day dominated by the Romans. However, not much really changed in the Roman world. The Greeks actually dominated the Romans culturally, as people say. Even the Roman Empire would fade away as well, and the old values of their culture, namely uh, the political and philosophical exchange of ideas, would die away for over a millennium. In recent centuries, long after the Greek world has passed away, There were people living under social, political, economic, and religious oppression in Europe, particularly England, which existed under a monarchy that controlled all of the previously mentioned areas of life. Brave adventurers began to colonize a location called the New World, also known as America, as an attempt to be removed from the oppression of their homeland. But as more people joined the New World, the more influence the Old World had there. And so these people, determined to be free once and for all, brave individuals, banded together to resist the government that was oppressing them and build a new nation. And, of course, they succeeded. 
When it came to decide how to run the new nation, though, the leaders of the revolution looked to an older way of doing things, the Greek and Roman ways. They longed for the free market and public exchange of ideas, and most of all, rule by the people, democracy. They built a nation that was founded on free speech, and its constitution was built to let people speak whatever they wanted. They encouraged an industry of the press, and newspapers displaying all sorts of opinions exploded all over this new country, saying whatever they wanted without fear that the government would censor them or shut down their ideas or uh, target them for having certain beliefs. And so, the Greek value of the public exchange of ideas had all but perfectly been captured by America. But to some, it felt like the true magic of the Agora was never truly captured. And now we arrive at our modern day, two and a half centuries later, and the modern world has created an electronic infrastructure that can transport information across our massive globe within seconds or less. With our ability to transport information and the ease of discussing ideas, the Agora has never been more real than it is right now. We have that wonderful, magical place where everyone can freely exchange ideas, philosophical uh, ideology, and any opinions without fear of the government or anything else. Of course, we don't call it an agora anymore. We have a new name for this magical gathering, okay? Twitter. (laughs) And let me tell you, this wonderful, majestic new agora is... Ugly. What is wrong with our modern political uh, approach to debating ideas? Our, our idea of free speech has become completely twisted somewhere, and any trip to the social media space is going to immediately prove that. So, like, uh, for those of you at home right now, Mac and I are recording this uh, a few days after the Dayton, Ohio, and the El Paso, Texas shootings, and so those things are still, like, hot on social media right now, which is actually... I mean, it's terrible, but it's also uh, actually convenient because we didn't know that was going to happen when we started uh, planning for this episode. So that actually just kind of happened on its own. Yeah. So, Mac, what is wrong with our our modern approach to discussing ideas? Our, our free market of ideas, as we'll call it, uh, is like totally screwy. And what would you say is the the source of that? I mean, I think there's a very long trail you could follow. Um, and I'm going to kind of just briefly go over some of those things. And, you know, I think part of it is the anonymity of the internet of Twitter, where you can say whatever you want, however you want, and nobody can know if you're serious or not. So I think part of it is just, you know, free speech has the consequence of people abusing it for the sake of making people mad. And I think that's Mm -hmm. part of it, but I, I think it's a lot deeper than that in reality. I think what it really kind of, boils down to is the how we kind of tend to villainize people who we politically disagree with it's not oh i disagree with them that means we have a different solution for the same problem we both want to solve the problem we just see different ways of doing it it's i disagree with you that means you have bad intentions you want to hurt people you want to destroy our country so i must defeat you and the Mm -hmm. thought process of defeating those we disagree with ends up taking the primary focus away from solving the real problems so one thing that, that I kind of think of when I talk about that is, you know that scene in, uh, I think it was the first Guardians of the Galaxy? Somebody asked Star-Lord, well, why do you care about saving the planet? And he goes, because I'm one of the idiots living on it. <laughs> and I think, like, 
Why would there be, if you're a Democrat and you feel this way about Republicans or vice versa, you're a Republican and you feel this way about Democrats, why would you believe that an entire, like a huge portion of the population is seeking to destroy the country they live in? There is exactly. no logic behind that. And, and that doesn't just go for Democrat or Republican. That goes for any, quote unquote, opposing ideologies. But we need not to judge the intentions and the motives of the people we disagree with. We spend so much time focusing on, well, uh, why is why is this person doing that? Don't look at what you think their intentions are. We focus so much on defeating the enemy as opposed to producing solutions. And it mm-hmm. kind of just becomes this giant hive mind that is fueled by media and common trends and things like that. And it just becomes this this battle of who can be more ugly and who can be more petty. Yeah, and I bet one problem with that, especially with like discerning motives of people and stuff, is our modern electronic infrastructure. Is It's founded on text, all right? We use text-based uh, communication most of the time, especially in social media. So Twitter, all of your opinions are going to be transmitted through just the written language. And in, what's the limit now, 280 characters? I think so, yeah. Uh, you cannot express your social background, or like a million other things, your attitude, the tone of voice while you're saying it, just little things like that. These are all huge parts of social communication. So when you see a retweet uh, from someone that you've never met before, you have no idea who they are, you only see 280 characters or less of their opinion. Uh, It's In order to get any sort of information from that, you have to fill in the blanks, which for most situations, filling in the blanks is pretty consistent and okay. But when it comes to discerning motives, especially in a tense political culture, that's not going to go over well. You're going to immediately be placing things into their mind. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, for instance, like the president is very active on Twitter <laughs> and you can immediately see like, oh, my gosh, it's Trump. I don't like that guy. And immediately place whatever like evil supervillain tone you want while you're reading his tweet. And because we don't have a way to transmit uh, the tone and uh you know tone of voice into written language as of right now there's there's no way to tell like maybe he did write it in an evil voice maybe he does think he's a maniac or maybe not yeah so what do they say it's like communication is is 10% what you say and 90% how you say it and so when you're communicating online in this text form only kind of communication where the only form of of accent and and context is emojis it, it's left up to your personal interpretation of what they meant by it, of the motive and the the intonation of which they were stating what they were saying. So it just becomes mm-hmm. whatever your perception of the person is just being confirmed over and over and over again. If somebody tells you, hey, this person that's tweeting hates dogs, and then they're making jokes about dogs, you're going to assume that those jokes are from a place of hatred for dogs. Mm-hmm. And just each time you're just going to be more and more sure of that. So it just kind of just reaffirms your your bias. Yeah, that's another interesting problem that you bring up. Again, with the infrastructure of Twitter, precisely, is that not only can you do retweets, you can do uh, what's called uh, quote tweets is what I think Twitter calls it, which is when you take somebody else's tweet and then you add a comment to it. And the way a, tr- a Twitter feed works is you actually read the person's comment on the post before you read the post. So, for instance, um, a liberal that I follow, I'm politically conservative, and Mac is as well for any of you who are curious, um, but I 
I'm very involved. Like, my Twitter is all gaming people, uh, lots of whom are from Los Angeles, and they all have, like, very, very liberal opinions. And so Trump tweeted uh, a couple days ago. This was after, uh, what's his name, Elijah whatever in Baltimore. His house got broken into, which was seemingly ironic. I think that was uh, probably someone on the far right trying to make a point. But um, anyways, Trump tweeted about this guy's, like, the mayor of Baltimore's house getting broken into, and I don't even remember what he said, but I do remember one of the gamers that I follow did what's called a quote tweet. And so he said something about, like, impeach this toddler or whatever, okay? <laughs> so now I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed, and what do I see? I see so-and-so says, impeach this toddler. And then under that, with that context in mind of that's what this person thinks of this tweet, then I read Trump's actual tweet. And maybe it doesn't have any of that terrible baggage that um, that, that gamer had imposed on it. But regardless, it's in my mind now. Again, just based on Twitter, which seems to be like a hotspot for political debate as far as social media is concerned, uh, is built like that. So you can swing people's opinions on something before it's even read. Yeah, and I would just like to point out for whoever might be listening that we're going to probably be using a lot of examples of, well, people are saying this about Trump, and that's not because we're trying to, like, push any sort of pro-Trump agenda, but that's just because he's who's in office, he's who's relevant. I think that these are problems that are mutual to pretty much every ideology. Um, so these things were very applicable on the conservative side when Obama was in office and things like that. This isn't just like a, here's why people need to stop criticizing Trump podcast. This is just a political discourse is absolutely screwed up on both sides and and brainstorming over why yeah and so like probably the best example as far as like uh people on the right doing it is probably like uh senator cortez or bernie sanders uh where you know anything they tweet is going to get berated by people on the right and anything that someone on the right tweets is going to get berated by people on the left uh, it's the same idea happening, yeah. One example is like over these this past week where there's been, you know, two mass shootings tragically within 24 hours of each other, I saw a post by, I'm not sure exactly what media site it was, but it was a media site that just said, uh, Trump seen golfing during tragedies. You know, the headline was basically trying to depict Trump as his heartless, careless monster. And the article was even yeah. trying to deeper explain him as that. And the same thing was was being done to Obama when he was in office. Something bad happened, and if he wasn't devoting every millisecond of his time to solving that, people assumed he didn't care about it. You know, like, I, I tweeted this out the other day, and um, a lot of liberals are complaining that Trump hasn't very explicitly in his, in his like, in a public way, said, I condemn white supremacy, I condemn neo-Nazi terrorism, whatever. He hasn't been that clear with it. And that is the exact same way that conservatives felt when Obama was in office and there was all of the ISIS um, activity mm -hmm. and Obama didn't very explicitly condemn and denounce radical Islamic terrorism. It's the same thing. It's literally a mirror of each other, but nobody seems to recognize it as such. Exactly. Yeah, so I think we can recognize uh, without a whole ton of detail that there is a seriously, like, screwed up political realm out there. And Twitter, as far as I can tell, is the best place to go. I don't spend a lot of time on other social media, but, like, I don't see a whole lot of political debate going on on Pinterest or, or like, Tumblr. You know, 
those are just nerds and introverts and whatever <laughs> doing whatever they want. Like macaroni doesn't care who's president. You know, macaroni in a mason jar. Pinterest doesn't care. So Twitter seems to be the home of it, which is why I just keep bringing it up. That's where a lot of politicians are just speaking directly to the people, which is cool because I don't think we can rely on any mainstream media anymore. So having politicians just talk directly to their audience is pretty sweet. Word of mouth is is an awesome aspect of Twitter. Yeah, yeah, that's what's cool. Um, so even though you can do things like quote tweet and, you know, mess with things, the fact that the president has a direct line to the people and, you know, a lot of other people as well, like most of the senators all have Twitter accounts that are very active. And that, that's a good thing that like th- that kind of communication has never happened outside of a press conference, you know, in a very, very long time outside of, I don't know, like, was it the, was it FDR and the, the late night chats there, the fireside chats or when he was talking on the radio. I forget which president that was. I'm clearly not a history buff, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> I think that was FDR and, like, the radio fireside chats. And that was, like, just the president sitting down talking to the people. And, like, anytime something crazy happens, like, you know, the president will record something in front of a TV screen. Reagan did it after, um, what's it, Apollo... Again, not a history buff. <laughs> after a spaceship blew up, Ronald Reagan gave a speech on television that basically, like, saved NASA. So, like, that's a very public address that, you know, skips yeah. the press. But Twitter, this is unheard of. This is just a direct line of communication all day, every day. Like, politicians are active, and that's really cool. But it has some drawbacks, and part of it is it is just continually feeding into this hot, hot, hot debate on Twitter. And it's just, it's ugly. It's gross. And, and it's more than just social media. It's just who we are society in general right now yeah then the question remains what are we supposed to do about this like what does the bible say about this so before we begin that leg of this discussion Something needs to be addressed, all right? And this is going to get backed up by me repeatedly here. People attempt to use the Bible for political agendas, and it simply was not meant to do that, all right? So um, a lot of people on the left, and this stands out to me because, like, they're using the Bible, which is, you know, important to me, but they're using it to fight for uh, the, the cultural and social approach that they have, which I disagree with. And so, you know, th- this sticks out to me. When people on the left say something like, um, because the Bible uh, is so encouraging of, like, charity and giving that we should just have open borders, let the Mexicans come in, and, you know, just give them our economic success, so on and so forth, that kind of idea. And really, the Bible doesn't do that. It's not a political book. It does... It supports um, conservative values as well. If you look at the law and the way, you know, there's very specific rules about the ways that people are able to defend themselves, but they are encouraged to defend themselves. Like uh, if someone breaks into your house during the day, you can't kill them. They have the right to live, but you can kill them if they break into your house at night. Like that's just part of like the law. And so it's part of, you know, individual liberty and the way justice works. And that's I see a lot of conservative values in the, the Jewish law of the Old Testament. I don't know, man. If you look at Jericho, I, I think the Bible supports people knocking down the wall if Trump ever puts it up. Yeah. Um, but what about the book of Nehemiah? Ooh, that's a good point. Yeah. See? 
So there we go. It has nothing to do, you know, it's like so political. Um, yeah, it's not actually, because we have Israelites tearing down walls, and then we have Israelites building walls. Maybe the Bible wasn't meant for Americans trying to figure out if we should build a wall in 2019. The Bible does not support your political opinion either way. That's not what it's for. The Bible is doing something else, and it's describing to us how we're supposed to act as people. And so one of the primary ways that it does this is through narrative. So we're going to take a quick little journey through narratives in scripture, particularly referring to uh, the gospel. So narratives referring to Jesus. And then the book right after Acts, Acts of the Apostles is its full title, and the way the apostles handled disagreement. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter um, 23. So in Acts chapter 23, we are, this is like the strongest thing I could find referring to like our modern political space, all right? Uh, the Bible actually has a picture of people fighting over these political and religious ideas uh, in a very similar way that America does. In Acts chapter 23, just a little bit of background here. Paul, the Apostle Paul, has gone on a few missionary journeys around, and he has returned to Jerusalem. And he is accused, falsely, of violating one of the rules of the temple. The temple is still standing. Uh, it wasn't as strong in the Christian faith, but there were a lot of Christian Jews who still practiced a lot of the things going on in the temple. Uh, maybe not sacrifices. I don't think they participated in sacrifices, but they still did other things in temple worship. Um, and so when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, he journeys into the temple and he's accused of violating one of the rules of the temple in the fact that he's brought a Gentile into, uh, the inner courts where the Gentile is not supposed to be. Now, this is of course false because, um, Paul didn't do that, but regardless, he's accused, the people are about to stone him. And then the Roman commander sees that and he's not having it. So the Roman commander takes him and then there's all kinds of drama with that because the commander then does stuff he's not supposed to do. And this commander gets super confused about what's going on. Like, who is this Paul guy? Why is everyone upset? So he decides that he's going to bring Paul before this group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the religious and political, or it was one and the same in the Jewish world, the religious and political influence in Israel at the time. No separation of church and state here. Yeah, there there really was none, aside from the fact that the state actually ruled the church and state because there was a king in, okay, how do we phrase this? There's the Sanhedrin, which have the religious and political control of the country, but they're really just puppets doing tiny stuff while the king of Israel rules over them. At this time, it was Herod, okay? Then, the king is actually just a puppet too. The Roman government's actually who's in control. So the governor, um, like Pontius Pilate was the governor, and then I think Felix was governor of that uh, province at the time of Paul. Anyways, this guy, trying to figure out what's going on religiously, brings Paul to the Sanhedrin. So he gets in front of the Sanhedrin and they just kind of like accuse him of this and he's just not having it. And then uh, verse 6 in chapter 23 tells us this. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. All right, we're going to pause right there. So these are the two political groups as opposed to conservative and liberal or right and left like we have in America. They had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in angels, spirits, resurrection, and the afterlife, okay? So all kind of like uh, ethereal, you know, divine things, uh, while the Sadducees did not. They believed that those were symbolic of things that happened in life. This is the one life we have and that we die and then who knows what. 
this is like the big debate in ancient Israel is, which is correct. Are there spirits and spiritual beings or not so much? And so Paul notices this and then he says this. Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged, all right? Let's boil that down. He just brought resurrection, which is one of the big things that they argue about, into the picture. And then check this out. Paul's a genius, all right? He knows exactly what he's doing. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of course, he brought the hot topic in. He mentioned gun control at school, and now everybody's debating in the hallway. The assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry. So people are just debating, and now they're debating louder. And then on top of the debate, the Pharisees come out on top uh, in volume. The scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. That is the richest line of all time, all right? So this is just a bipartisan issue. Paul has violated one of the laws. These are incredibly rigid. They're just trying to find out if Paul is guilty or something, all right? Everybody agrees, if he has indeed violated the law, that they they want him to be stoned. They'll have to run it by the Roman government, but they want to kill him. And then he brings resurrection into the picture and claims that he's a Pharisee and that he believes in the resurrection. And he's like, you know what? This is why you guys really want me is because I believe in the resurrection. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees jump up and they're like, yo, this guy is legit. We need to not touch them. In fact, I think he's actually just heard from God and we really just need to put this to bed. All of a sudden, the Pharisees are all in defense of Paul. What? Because suddenly it becomes a matter of, of party. It becomes a, a like I said, America does, defeat your enemy. Don't worry about what about the topic at hand. Exactly. It's beyond politics now, or beyond the problem and into politics. Now it's about the agenda. So once it got brought into the equation, the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't care less about whether Paul had violated the rules or not. Now they're using him as a tool for their religious and political agenda. That is a really good picture of what our world is like. And so uh, the end result of this is a riot, and the commander pulls Paul out, and you can basically picture him shaking his head like, man, the Sanhedrin is useless, and still not knowing what's going on because of that confusing scene. Like that, That's all that happens. And Paul gets out of there alive. So what's the moral of the story? If we look at that narrative, what are we supposed to do as Christians in a world that is completely divided over political beliefs? Is the goal... To, uh, to behave like Paul and to just use that division to our advantage to get what we want? I mean, probably not exactly. <laughs> so that brings up the one, uh, the one point there is that the Bible, the Bible is not designed to be used to support your political opinions. The other thing that we need to bring up in this discussion of the Bible is that characters, we assume that we're supposed to obey, or uh, I guess not obey, but mimic the main character of a story in the Bible. So, for instance, um, oh, I can't even think of a for instance. We shouldn't threaten to cut a baby in half to solve political disagreements. Yeah, th- there's a good point. So, usually what people do is they try to mimic what the, the main character is in the Bible. And So, the main character across the whole thing is, you know, Jesus, of course. But smaller narratives, it's pretty clear to define, you know, in First and Second Samuel, it's David. David is the main character, even though it's named Samuel. Samuel dies like a third of the way into the story and has nothing to do with the rest of it. It's about David. But 
That is a bad way to go about reading the Bible. So even though Paul is the main character here, and I think he was behaving morally for his situation, um, that doesn't mean we're supposed to mimic it. And that's fairly obvious in this uh, circumstance that what we're supposed to do in a divided world is not divide it more. That that doesn't seem right. What it did was got Paul out of a bad situation that he was in and just proved that the the Sanhedrin was useless as a religious body. And that's a theme that we're going to see throughout here is that the Bible doesn't address political division, as far as I can tell, more clearly than that instance with the Sanhedrin. So uh, moving on to the works and the teachings of Jesus, we're going to see a different theme. So Jesus also uh, addresses political and religious issues. Again, in ancient Jerusalem, uh, Israel, these were pretty much one and the same. The law, because you think about it, the law that Israel and Judah was following for its entire history as a nation was a religious law. So politics and religion are one and the same. And anytime one of those things tends to come up, Jesus does something that we're going to see a pattern of here. So in Matthew 22, in verse 15 through 22, uh, some scribes ask Jesus a question about a coin. So there's this thing called, a, we call it a tax. It was sort of a worship tax, I guess, where Caesar demanded uh, one denarius per year as as a worship for him as because he's a deity. The emperor was a deity in that sort of uh, thinking, the Roman thinking. And so he demanded this, and people in Israel were really hesitant to do that because that kind of conflicted with uh, worshiping God. If there's only one true God, then we can't be worshiping Caesar. Uh, And so the Pharisees decide to challenge Jesus with this question. They say, should we or should we not? And so Jesus, in verse 19, says this, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. Show me the denarius coin that he demands. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, it's Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay, political. And to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they were marveled and left him alone. So... This is the pattern. First of all, I can go on forever about how cool this passage is, but the pattern we're looking for here is Jesus takes this political idea and he cares very little for it. Caesar wants money? Yeah, whatever. Do what the government wants. But the more important thing here is the religious idea behind it. And so this is a deep thing. This was brought up to me. I was listening to Word Radio for like five minutes the other day and this came up. I'd never heard this before. So the specific question that Jesus asks, uh, asks about the coin, which was what? Whose picture and title are stamped on it? Exactly. Whose image and inscription are how New King James translates it. All right. Whose image is on you? Exactly. Bingo. And who's uh, in the Old Testament, it says to write these laws on the tablet of your heart. And so the laws of God are inscribed on us and the image of God is printed on us. And so this is beyond just about taxes, all right? Jesus uses this as a brilliant, brilliant metaphor for a deeper religious issue. And he doesn't care whether Caesar wants taxes or not. Like, it doesn't matter. 
Season wants money, like it's got his face on it, just give it to him. Here's the big deal. Let's use this as a metaphor to teach something deeper and spiritual. And so this is the pattern. Pretty much anytime anything political comes up, uh, who would Jesus vote for? You know, WWJD, who would, who would, what would Jesus do? Who would he vote for? The answer is Jesus would go to the voting booth and then he would turn around and give a large speech using voting as a metaphor (laughs) for something about God. All right. What he does in the ballot is irrelevant. He might not even fill it out. The point is the metaphor. And so you can't really use narratives of Jesus's teaching or uh, his behavior as being anything political either. So we're still kind of running into a dead end here because we can't behave the way Paul does. And Jesus, for once, isn't helpful. So what are we supposed to do? So Jesus, in all of his political discussions, is just not really all that helpful. And so we'll move back into Acts. All right, we've gotten our picture of what a divided world looks like from Paul already. Now we're going to see what Paul does when he's faced with debating people. All right. So I want you to picture this, all right? I'm a barista. I work in a coffee shop. So like I said, uh, people really, really kind of miss that Greek ideology of having people gather together and debate philosophical ideas, all right? Um, What people don't realize is that we actually do have those people already, and it's nowhere near as glorious as we picture with the togas and everything, all right? They're called hipsters. (laughs) You find them in coffee shops. They've got a MacBook and a latte that's incredibly complicated, all right? And they're debating people on Twitter. And that's the people in the Agora. All right. So during Paul's missionary journeys, he eventually found himself at an Agora in Athens, like the Agora, which was a a marketplace. But it was also just where people were. And he went there and he preached the gospel. And so this hipster, a.k.a. philosopher, finds him in the Agora. And he says, "Ooh, this is interesting. And so I will pick up the account in Acts chapter 17 verses, I'm starting verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace, Agora, daily with those who happened to be there. Then a certain Epicurean and Stoic philosopher encountered him, and he said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection, Luke tells us. And so they took him and brought him to the Aeropagus, all right? This is upper-level stuff. The uh, the Agora was just a public marketplace, all right? The Aeropagus, also known as Ares Hill, uh, for those of you who have read Percy Jackson before, <laughs> Ares Hill had a courtroom on it, and this is where they would do uh, criminal trials, but this is also where they would just do general political debate. It's the Supreme Court. Basically. And so... They bring him to the Aeropagus where all the hipsters are hanging out, all right? Get out of these common people. We want only the hipsters, the philosophers, all right? They took him and brought him to the Aeropagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? And this is proof that ancient Greek philosophers are just modern-day hipsters. Verse 21, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there at the Aeropagus spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Literally hipsters, all right? And I guess I can't give hipsters a hard time because you know how Fortnite has exploded in popularity recently? I played Fortnite once in beta before it was cool. Same. Yep, that would be me. So awesome. Yep, I haven't touched it since then. It's too cool for me. Too mainstream. (laughs) So yeah, I'm totally a hipster too because I do things before they're cool and then get upset when they are cool. Anyways... 
here's the deal. These hipsters bring Paul in, not because they're really enticed by the gospel, but because he's saying something new and they want to debate it. So then Paul gives this whole sermon. It's, I think, one of the longest sermons that he gives in all of Acts, as far as it's recorded. It's implied most of the time that he talks for a really long time, but Luke only gives us snippets or condensed versions of sermons. And so he gives this whole sermon to these debaters about Greek philosophy and theology, and he even addresses the fact that he kind of pretends like God is um, the God behind one of the idols erected in Athens, which, like, it seems really backwards. But Paul, of course, realizes that that God isn't a real whatever, but he uses it as an example. And again, he goes to philosophers and he's concerned about the religious ideal. And so, once again, we have seen that Paul just does not do much when it comes to debating politics. We've seen that Jesus does not do much when it comes to obeying politics and debating that. And so, we have nothing, nothing addressing, no narratives addressing how we are supposed to deal with a divided world. How are we supposed to behave? Are we supposed to behave like this divided world? Well, it seems like... The Bible has no comment on this matter. And so what are we supposed to assume? Should we just be acting like everybody else? I mean, it seems like the only option left, of course, is to just keep going on hating the people we disagree with. And then we find our key, hating. And so maybe the Bible doesn't have anything that talks about uh, disagreeing and political debate as far as I can tell, it's just not, it's not in there. You're not going to find it. What it does talk about is deeply introspective, interpersonal relationships. And so we know exactly what we're supposed to do in this divided world. And so Jesus actually taught plenty on this, as we will come to find out. In Luke chapter 6, so in the middle of this sermon, Jesus says this, Luke Chapter 6, verse 27. All right, dramatic reading time. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, do to them likewise. So that doesn't sound very political until you realize that our biggest enemies in this world right now are not Russians or Chinese people or I don't even know who are the U.S.'s enemies. I guess like ISIS was. Our biggest enemies as of right now are other Americans. Mm -hmm. And so this is how we are supposed to treat them. It has nothing to do with feeding into this division. In fact, it has little to do with the politics. Just stop putting so much stake into the politics. It's about the way we treat each other. And it's all founded in this idea of love, all right? Uh, I believe the love that Jesus uses there, uh, love your enemies, is agape, which is the Greek term uh, that Old King James refers to as charity. 
the idea behind agape is that it's one directional. You're not going to get it back. Just give. That's what charity is, and that's what agape is. It's love that gives. And so the root of that is in placing more stake in humanity and placing less stake in politics, which, Mac, I know you have opinions on this. Like, Yeah, so like <clears throat> what you were saying is, is Jesus asks for agape. So when you find your identity in who Jesus is, in the things Jesus says, your identity is focused on agape. When you have Jesus in when you have Jesus in your heart, he is the core of your identity. Who are you? I am a Christian. If you ask me who I am, I'm not going to say, "Well, I'm a I'm a 20-year-old white cisgender male um, and I like football." My first answer is I'm a Christian. And when you don't have that identity of of Christ, that is a very large hole in your identity that you have to fill with other things. So people fill that with with their sexuality, with their with their gender, with their race, with their age, and all other sorts of things. And and that then imprints a a much more personal aspect of of debate of when you're debating morality of of a variety of these different things. It's not just a a debate of concept. It's a debate of humanity. It doesn't just become a, well, do you believe this is right and wrong as a concept? It becomes, do you believe me to be right or wrong? It becomes much more personal, and that's why things, I believe, tend to get so hostile. Because it's not a debate of ideologies, it's a debate of identities. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, really, I mean, it's a heavy-hitting point. So, what the Bible teaches, as far as it comes to political division, actually has very little to do with our politics, and more to do with our people. It's what Jesus was always concerned with. It's what Paul was always concerned with. Our political world, I mean, our political world today is very different from the political world that they had. For instance, back then, all people could do when they didn't like the government was complain. (laughs) Nowadays, we actually are involved in the decision-making process. We have this democracy that very actively involves us, and we're all in the agora or the, uh, the Areopagus all the time debating. We have the opportunity to debate political ideas. We're encouraged to debate political ideas by our very constitution from our foundation 250 years ago. We have been encouraged to debate political ideas. But we need, as Christians, to step away from that for a second and think about what we're doing because it's like a black hole that we're getting sucked into, that the political is everything, and it's not. The people are everything. And so this is where our concept of agape comes in. And I'm going to read to you 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 8, which I think is just, ah, this is incredible. 1 Peter really is. I spend too much time, I guess not too much time. I spend a lot of time in the Pauline epistles. I need to get out of these and into the other epistles too, because they're small, but they've got good stuff in there too. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 8. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, 
to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a great passage. I love that so, so much. This is our instruction as Christians, above all else, have fervent love for one another because love will cover a multitude of sins, all right? So maybe it's not a sin to uh, to think that we shouldn't have a wall or that we should have a wall. Maybe it's not sinning necessarily to have a political opinion, but regardless, love's going to cover it. And so you can interact with people that you disagree with. I mean, in the world, it's done. You're shunned if you disagree with me. For a lot of people, I mean, not everyone, but a lot of people, too many people in this country will completely discredit you the second they learn your political beliefs. And even Christians, all right? So I was talking to someone the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess now. Man, time flies. Uh, And they were talking a little bit about politics. This is a a Christian, a middle-aged Christian person I was talking to. And she was under the opinion that a lot of the people in, like, Los Angeles, for instance, that I referenced earlier, these uh, this leftist politics, she believed that it was the result of demonic influence and people actually just putting, or demons putting blinders on people so that they would see, like, clearly this is just a dumb idea. And the only way they could possibly come to that conclusion is demons. And I kind of, like, nodded and just went with it. I guess I wasn't thinking about it too hard. And it's kind of stuck with me for a few weeks now. And I realize, no, no, I don't think demons are at all prefer, like if we look at our future, I don't think the demons prefer leftist America to rightist America, you know. I don't think they care. Yeah, I don't think they care. They've got bigger things on their plate. This is not, our, our political ideals are not necessarily representative of our religious ideals because unlike the Jewish world, we have a very strong separation of church and state. And having state opinions doesn't always mean, you know, your church opinions will often form a lot of your political opinions. But at the same time, uh, they're very far removed compared to in the Jewish world where the foundation of the law literally was also the religious law. Yeah, I don't think the the problem is the presence of demons or the presence of anything. I think it's the lack of something. If you say, what's the problem in our society? Well, look at the different, I guess, character traits that our, our citizens, our society as a whole seems to be lacking. Forgiveness, compromise, all of these things. And coincidentally, all of these things are literally who Jesus is. So if you're lacking all of these traits, and there's somebody who is literally these traits personified... I think you can put two and two together and say the problem in our society is a lack of Jesus. And that is completely and wholly true. That is what we are lacking. But then there's the question of how do you apply that, I guess, politically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Y'all need Jesus. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the thing. There is no perfect solution aside from Jesus. Yeah, and I think, and this is political me talking again, If you look at all of our biggest social issues right now, which are like gun control, uh, the wall and immigration and all that, whether we should go like uh, environmentalism and the Green New Deal and, you know, so many things, whatever you see is trending on Twitter at the time. Those are all of our biggest social and political issues, right? Wrong. We are spending way too much time debating political issues. And so our biggest political issue is our political issues. We need to re-figure out how we deal with disagreement, all right? And so if you really want to be political and you want to invest in this country, which is a good thing, this is a good country, all right? 
Let's invest in it by dealing with our biggest social issue right now, which is the lack of forgiveness and the problem of people shunning and splitting away and demonizing people that they disagree with. And so as a Christian and as an American, both in complete and perfect unison, your goal has far less to do with any of our major social issues except for this one, that we rectify the way we deal with political disagreements. And we do that with love. So what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to like fight for towns to start putting First Peter 4, you know, 8 through 12 or whatever I just read, up on, you know, town halls and stuff so that we start doing this the right way. No, 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 no. We're going to start in the religious realm, all right? So I always teach this way. You want to fix a social issue? Um, like, I gave a speech at, at college, um, uh, geez, semester before last. That's crazy. I gave a speech about the American diet. It was based off of this book by, um, oh, what's his name? Michael Palin, and it's called... Uh, a defense of food. Anyways, I was talking about the American diet, and I said, all right, we want to see social reform and diet. Maybe Michelle Obama isn't the solution. Maybe the solution is just you. Maybe you choose to eat food the, the right way, the healthy way, and start with you. And then set it like set it like a trend. That's more influential than any government influence is going to just be set a trend. Set a trend of people taking care of themselves and eating food the way they should. All right, we want to fix this major social political issue, start with yourself. Start with not splitting away from people that you disagree with. Stop demonizing people that you disagree with. Stop hurting them online, all right? So like a prime example, I wish I'd done this earlier. Uh, I clicked on one of the hashtags about the shootings. Um, must have been probably hashtag enough is enough. I think that's the one that's been trending. And there was some like college age girl or I didn't click on her account but it was like literally every other word was just an f-bomb I can't believe these effing politicians haven't effing done this I'm so effing over it's like this longest thing it's like okay everyone has a right to their opinion but some opinions are invalid and the opinion that says that you gotta go um just you know say that to all your politicians and demonize the people that you disagree with I'm sure when she meant politicians she meant people on the right although maybe she didn't maybe she's maybe she thinks that the left is responsible for this but most people when gun control issues come up they blame modern right free gun movements like the nra in that mindset of well this organization this person is responsible is so simplistic where i wish it were true i wish some things were as simple as getting a certain president out of office or or no longer supporting a certain organization but the reality of it is, it's the desperate wickedness of the human heart that we need to fix, not who's in office. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you fix that inwardly before you can fix anyone else outwardly. You start with love for yourself. Take the plank out of your own eye before you take the fleck out of somebody else's. Mm -hmm. And people will see and they'll follow, okay? Like, it's crazy. I, I mentioned that we were going to record this podcast to a coworker, I think it was yesterday. And I was like, yeah, we just... We have this issue in America where, like, we're just so politically divided. And then she was like, yeah, I'm really political. And then told me about all of her political be beliefs and how much she disagrees with other people and how much it irritates her that other people disagree. It's like, okay, great. You literally just admitted to me that you were the problem. Like, okay. But it stands out when you're not like that. So, for instance, she disagreed based on what she listed out to me very, very, very briefly. Uh, I disagree with her on every single point. All right. 
Does that mean I'm ever going to hold that against her? Like, it doesn't affect the way we make coffee. It doesn't make her less American. You know, she has that right to that opinion. But maybe, maybe being in the presence of someone who's far less concerned with the political and is more concerned with the personal and is willing to talk about social issues, like the minor social issues, like gun control, with love first and not an agenda. Just, hey, I disagree with you, but like, let's talk about this on a personal level and, you know, understanding that I'm going to show love to all people. That stands out. And that's how it was always meant to be. And coming from someone who's currently running an online ministry, the way you talk about politics online has the potential to make or break the way someone views you and therefore views Christ. Absolutely. So just as an example, a couple weeks ago, I had a job interview. And the very first thing this guy said to me when the interview started was, congratulations, you are the only person out of about 20 that has passed the social media screening. Which was what? People like ranting about politicians on Twitter or just anything? Just foul language? And... Yeah, anything he doesn't want representing his business. Yeah. Yeah, that's big. People, yeah, a lot of businesses are checking out social media. So like I know a few baristas who've gotten in trouble for you know, bad-mouthing the company while they're working for them. Like, that's public. Everyone can see that. Like, you can't do that. Yeah. But at the same time, like, people are just, people are watching. This is, this is your image. So in, let's use that example. Your employer, you are representing someone. So let's represent him well. Let's do this with love before all else. Because above all else, love will cover a multitude of sins. Even the worst possible sin in America disagreeing with me (laughs) let your political discourse be rooted in reaching a loving solution not the solution that the political party by which you claim to be a part of stands for Mm -hmm. your focus is is love it is going about things in a way that represents jesus in a positive light and represents him adequately not getting the stamp on the political bill that you want passed. Bingo. It's all about priorities. And so at some point, you've got to sort out yours, you know. You might listen to this whole podcast, but in the end, you still have the decision. What are you going to do? What What are your priorities? If it's politics, let me tell you what. Everybody has a right to an, uh, an opinion, but if your opinion is politics or more important, uh, your opinion is invalid. Boom. I'm invalidating it because there are things, you know, America's great, but there are things bigger than America. And you do best not just to believe that your religion is bigger, but to actually act like your religion is bigger and your your relationship with Christ uh, that you want all other people to share. I think it's just a matter of, like you said, starting with self. Do some, some self, some inward looking. Don't just make accusations of what's wrong with our political system. Look at yourself. Look at your own heart. We all have ways to grow and I think there is very little personal responsibility being taken in our political discourse. Mm-hmm. What's it they teach you in like first grade? For every finger you point at me, there's like four pointed back at you, something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Start with yourself and then and then we'll worry about the rest of the country. And maybe America will, you know, explode. Who cares? We got <laughs> bigger priorities than just that. Mm-hmm. Don't assume other people's motives. Assess your own. 
Well, I thought that was particularly a fun discussion. I hope you did too. Uh, there was a lot going into that, so Mac and I have a very rich political background uh, just talking about everything that happens, and we've been talking about stuff for years. But I, I really think that we reached a solid conclusion there, and, and I hope you did too. The beginning of this new America, where people are able to get over each other's differences, is an ancient idea, and it's not found in the Greek culture, it's found in the Christian culture. It's found in the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles who came after him. And so, it is my strongest recommendation that you try to live that way, that you follow, that you breathe in the very essence of the teachings of Jesus, and use that in the way that you deal with modern political issues. In other news, I'm beginning to get very satisfied with the content that's coming out on this uh, podcast. So I'm finally getting confident with the way it all sounds, with the structure of the way we're doing things, having guests on the show. And so I'm really going to start making a push uh, with the release of this episode uh, for people to just listen to this podcast, to tune into the site. Uh, I've done some graphical work on the site. I think it looks great now. You've got a bio for Mac on the About page. Uh, you've got pictures of all of us. You've got a new color scheme. So I'm happy. The page is going to continue to grow. Uh, the content is going to continue to grow. But I feel like I'm finally at a point where I can really like begin to advertise this. So if you feel like the way we discuss things, the opinions that we come from, and our foundation on scripture, then please, please, please send this to everybody you know. It's as simple as a share on Facebook or something. Share one of our quotes. I'm going to try to put quotes out. Let's see how that goes. I, I tried a verse thing, and I, d I couldn't keep up with that. That was too much work. But putting out uh, a couple quotes quotes from each show before it comes out I think would be really cool and I'll probably attach one as I do podcasts as well so just share a quote and if you think it works uh, it works uh, but in any way shape or form that you feel like you can just signal boost the crap out of this that'd be great because I want to see the numbers get so big do yourself do your friends and do me and do Jesus a favor and let's see if we can get people redeeming their time and in the meantime which I will be redeeming. I will see you guys 